Praise the Lord, everybody. Truly, truly good to be here today. Um, first and foremost, obviously, in all things, we give God glory. We we, we want to bless the Lord, magnify the Lord, because he is truly worthy of our praise. Um, I'm going to ask my technician if they would just do me a favor and go over to the board and just turn up a little bit uh, the mic that is unmuted. That should be a podium mic. Just turn it up a little bit. It's unmuted already. Just turn the dial up. Yep. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's perfect. Thank you. Um, first and foremost, we want to uh, thank the Lord for each and every one of you um, that have taken your time out to join with us this morning. We're excited about what God is doing, the direction that we are going, and we're looking for great things to continue to happen uh, in our behalf. And we're just excited about the Lord. Amen. I, I hope that you're excited about the Lord as well. Again, I'm looking forward as we're getting more equipment into place and set up. We're looking forward to uh, praise and worship being a part of the broadcast, and that's, that's soon to come. Um, uh, by the grace of God, hopefully within the next uh, week to two weeks, we should have everything in place to be able to uh, start our services on air with our praise and worship team, our musicians. Um, whether it be live or in a recorded fashion, we'll work through those um, kind of... Uh, um, that kind of set up, but we will definitely bring you some worship. Amen? Amen. So just come ready to give God some glory and to uh, worship the Lord because the Lord is due that worship. Another special thing about today, today uh, is my 31st wedding anniversary. Hallelujah. My high school sweetheart, I thank the Lord for her. I salute her, uh, the mother of my two sons, my best friend, and some things I can't say live on air. Hallelujah. She is everything to me, and I thank the Lord for her, and I thank the Lord for the 31 years that he's given us. Uh, we were talking this morning, as a matter of fact, about how this day, um, you know, 31 years ago, we were in an automobile driving to Greenup, Kentucky so that we could get ourselves hitched. And no, she was not pregnant. You can check the age of my eldest son. Amen. Hallelujah. But we thank the Lord for the 31 years, and we're looking uh, should uh, the Lord's coming not come before that we have another 31 and then another 31 after that and then another 31 after that until the Lord should come back. Amen. But we thank the Lord again for... Uh, for her and uh, just know honey I love you with with all my heart and uh, you are everything to me I wish I could give you more than I've ever given you show you my love for you and in, in greater and more brilliant ways than I've been able to uh, but just you keep sticking with me and it, we're it's always up from here amen hallelujah praise the Lord well, thank you. I pray. My studio audience. Amen. Amen. But we, we thank the Lord again for each and every one of you that's taking your time out to join with us. I don't want to be before you long or hold you long, um, but I do want to share the word of God with you. And I was uh, thinking about the word of God and 
what it is that I would bring to you today, how I would talk to you or teach you or preach to you or declare to you God's love, God's wisdom, God's direction. And as I was flipping through the scriptures, I was like, oh, this would be really good. And I talked to the Lord and he didn't give me the thumbs up. And so I'd flip through some more and I was like, oh man, this would really be good. And again, he said, yeah, it's good, but that's not what I want you to talk about. And I just began to continue to kind of go from um, different places in Scripture to try to determine what it is God wanted me to say. And after about 45 minutes to an hour of just going back and forth and uh, starting to study something, but then kind of being driven away from it and uh, trying to jot down some uh, notes and um, put, you know, thought to, to paper, uh, so to speak, I started to wonder what is it about the word of god like it's awesome and i want you to know that everything i'm going to say to you today is dependent upon the truth that everything written in the bible came directly undiluted and undefiled from god scripture is unique in its origin because its author is not man or humanity it is God's word it's not man's word it's not a man's uh, uh, thoughts it's God's word it's his thoughts it's his direction it's his truth now there are a lot of other people uh, and religions who believe differently than we do I mean all you have to do is just turn on the TV and you can realize that on a Sunday from the varying different religious programs that are out there and everyone is telling you the same thing that I just declared to you they're making the same claim if you look at the Book of Mormon or the Quran all are said to be from God as well now if essentially everyone can make a claim like this who do we believe why do we believe the Word of God as written in the Bible is what it is how do we validate whose truth is true we're living in a time where everyone seems to have their own version of truth and you've heard me talk about this before I've shared this uh, idea of truth with you from absolute truth to subjective and objective truth and we went through a whole truth uh, series talking about it but society would have us believe that everyone's truth is just as valid as anyone's truth but I have an issue with that because not everything can be true at the same time. Somebody is wrong when you're talking about something. So is there a way to differentiate between real truth and subjective truth? All biblical information is validated through a series of tests that confirm it is the word of God. And because the word of God is so paramount to the life of a believer... I want to show you how valid it is and I even want to point to you today if we have the time why sometimes the Word of God seems to be ineffective in your life you know, since the Bible claims to be the unique revelation of God its words must stand out from all other words in essence it must be self-authenticating now, the most important proof of the Bible's uniqueness is the testimony of Jesus written in the scriptures themselves. The main reason that we know the Bible is God's word is because Jesus said so. 
He used the word scriptures on a number of occasions to describe the Old Testament writings that he was referring to as he was dealing with people or the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and, and the scribes. He used them, whether the law or the prophets. Uh, you know, you can look at Matthew 21 and 42, where Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus also made a statement during the Sermon on the Mount that no one can ignore. He said, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. You can check the text, Matthew 5 and 18. You see, one implication of Jesus' statement is that when you reject the Bible, you are also rejecting Jesus. And when you reject Jesus in you, you make him a liar in your determination according to your standard and many people who want to claim that Jesus uh, they want to claim Jesus but they don't want to accept the Bible as the word of Jesus but Jesus ruled out this option because he tied his life and his ministry completely to the fulfillment of scripture you see Jesus used the strongest language possible to declare that the Bible is the word of God you see the Bible is also unique in the way that it has come to us. The Bible's unity of message is nothing short of a miracle in and of itself. You can't get two people to sit in the same room and agree about the same thing that they just saw. But the Bible, it was written over a period of about 1,500 years by 40 or more people who lived in several different countries with different cultures and uh, various backgrounds. Just try bringing people together, uh, a liberator, a national leader like Moses, a military general like Joshua, two kings like David and Solomon, a shepherd like Amos, a tax collector like Matthew, and even throw in some fishermen like John and Peter. You can even add a rabbi. I think I know one. His name is Paul. Now have them write down even the simplest message and see if they can agree with what each other has to say. That wouldn't even happen if they were in the same room at the same time working in, 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 with the same set of facts, let alone uh, separated by hundreds of years because every author has their own point of view and their own perspective. They have their own perception of events that are uh, detailed or relayed or experienced by them. But the thin red line of our Redeemer, his blood runs all the way through the Bible from the first prophecy of, uh, of a Savior and God's slaying of animals to cover Adam and Eve. You can read that in Genesis 3 and 15 and 3 and 21 to the very last chapter of the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation that invites the redeemed to spend eternity with God. You see, the Bible's message is consistent. It is unified from beginning to end. The psalmist summarized this in a dynamic statement, and I love this statement in Psalm 119 and 160. The sum of your word is truth. You see, no one but God can make 66 books into one perfectly unified literary work of brilliance. 
the unity of the Bible is like that of the human body in which every part and function can be explained only in reference to the whole body. Now, someone might say you're just using what is known as circular reasoning. You see, you're going to the Bible to authenticate the Bible. Okay, I hear your argument. I, I, I can be sympathetic to your statement. But let's use the standards that are used to validate historical literature and verify its truth and corroborate the Bible's witness to itself. So when I make the argument that history testifies to the veracity of Scripture, I'm not talking about the Bible as a supernatural document, but as a work of historical literature. Now, the point is that if people accepted the same standards of validity for the Bible that they readily accept for other historical documents, they would have have to admit that the Bible is the most widely attested book that was ever written. We can take any figure from history who is no longer on the scene. How do we know that George Washington was our nation's first president? Nobody alive today can say, I have seen George Washington in the flesh. I've met him. I've heard him. I've spoken with him. I've sat down at the table with him. I've broken bread with him. I know he was real. You see, we accept the historical claim of George Washington because we trust the historical record that we have about him. And the same can be said for many other people we could name from our history and the history of varying cultures throughout the world. You see, this test is validated across multiple cultures and multiple histories. One test of the validity of any historical record is its proximity to the life of the person whose history it records. You see, one reason the history of George Washington is considered reliable is because much of it was written during his lifetime by people who did know him, who did see him, who did speak with him, who saw him, who, who broke bread with him, who went to war with him. And more of it was written in the years that shortly came after his death. And the closer the historical record is to the person's life, the more valid that record becomes. Now, if we use this test of truth and sicity, yes, I just created that word. The Bible comes through with shining colors. You see, the very last portion of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, was written in 90s A.D., about 60 years after the death of Jesus. But it was also written by the Apostle John, and John was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. That gives his writings added weight in this test. You see, this is an amazing testimony to the Bible's trustworthiness. You see, by comparison, some of the famous writings of antiquity, such as those that tell of people like Julius Caesar, were recorded hundreds of years after the events that they describe. Now, many critics attack the early dates for various books of the New Testament because they know that if they admit that the Gospels and the Epistles were written so soon after the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus, mostly by eyewitnesses to Jesus, their case against the Bible is blown out of the water according to their own historical uh, test of validity. Another test of the Bible's historical validity is the number of existing manuscripts that affirm it. 
Now, we are told that 10 copies exist of the account of Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. This is one of the most famous events of ancient history. The earliest of these manuscripts was written hundreds of years after the event itself took place, yet the fact of Caesar's crossing has never been seriously questioned by historians. But the Bible puts the record and almost any other historical record to shame. While that record has 10, count it, 10, one, two, three, four, 10 to validate his existence. We have over 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament in existence, from fragments of a single verse to entireties of books. And these copies agree on the basic doctrines of the faith and the important facts of the life of Jesus. Although there are numerous differences of words and uh, the order of events, this record is unheard of in his historical uh, circles. In addition, only the Bible teaches history in advance. That's right, teaching history in advance. I know it sounds like an oxymoron for all you literary geniuses out there, and it would be for any book but the Bible. You see, God's word teaches about history hundreds of years before it happens. And this is what is called prophecy. Matter of fact, someone ought to tweet that or Facebook that. Prophecy is history in advance. If we had a, uh, no other validation of scripture but its fulfilled prophecies, we would still be on very solid ground. You see, there have been many so-called prophets in history, and some of them seem to make some accurate uh, prophecies, but the Bible's standard is one of 100% accuracy. You see, he's not, or the word of God is not like ivory soap. It's not just 99 and 44, 100% pure. Whether the prophecy is 100 or 500 years in advance of its fulfillment, it's not even worth discussing other prophets' record because no prophet in any holy book has ever claimed to prophesy the future on the scale that the Bible does. See, that's one of the things I love about God. He doesn't just do things. He does things in brilliance and in great grandeur. You see, one of the Bible's most amazing prophecy uh, is one uh, of the most uh, familiar, and that's the prophecy that Jesus Christ would be born in the village of Bethlehem. Now, this prophecy uh, is revealed to us, is given to us in the book of Micah, the fifth chapter and the second verse, which was written about 700 years before Jesus would even come on the scene with his birth. Its fulfillment is recorded in Matthew, the second chapter, the fifth through the sixth verse. And the time frame of this alone is miraculous in and of itself. But it's even more so when you consider that Bethlehem is just a dot on a map. In other words, the chances of prophesying the birth of Jesus and getting it right by accident are next to none. And don't forget that biblical prophecy isn't limited to religious events. The book of Daniel uh, contains the, the progression of the Gentile world uh, powers in the centuries that would come before Christ. Written hundreds of years before Alexander the Great and the, Great, the Greeks defeated the Medo-Persian Empire and then were in turn defeated by the Romans. You see, you can close your Bible and open your history book and you'll find that God tells the story of world history in advance. 
because the Bible is prophetic in its teaching. In fact, the prophetic nature of the Bible reaches beyond what is commonly understood as prophecy or the foretelling of events. You see, Peter writes that no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoken from God. If you don't believe me, open your Bible to the second book of Peter, the first uh, chapter in the 21st verse, and validate what I've just told you. You see, the Old Testament prophets like Elijah, uh, uh, Isaiah, and, and Daniel were messengers that were sent by God to carry his word and speak them directly to his people. And while these prophets fall within Peter's intended meaning, a closer look at uh, the biblical use of the term prophecy in this verse can help us build the case that Peter is using the term to denote all of God's word, not just the words of the prophet. You see, let me teach you something today. The literal translation of the word prophecy comes from the Greek word prophetia, which means speaking forth. So Peter contrasts the possibility of all scripture being a matter of human action or interpretation with the notice that these prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is unique not only in its prophecy and Holy Spirit, inspired writing but also in his preservation but just before I start to talk about his preservation let me remind you that when you are speaking the word you are speaking your history in advance when you're going through something in life you need to speak your history in advance you ought to apply the word of God to your crisis so you can command your history to reveal God's promise. But let me get back to preservation. That was just a sidebar for you, something to just nibble on while we go forward. You see, the preservation of the word of God, it survived for several thousand years, even though kings and the world's mightiest powers and, and greatest intellects have been trying to destroy it for centuries. Even now, people are still trying to discredit the word of God to the, to the degree that uh, some say homeschooling is bad because it limits children's views to only those held by the parents which are teaching them. And in many cases, parents are more biblically inclined than our local school system. And this biases the youth. Now think about it. How many books have not only survived for thousands of years, but also are still being read, debated, and sold around the world today at the level that the Bible is? Bible societies tell us that when they go into a country where Bibles are scarce, people will stand in line for hours and even days to receive a copy of God's Word. No book in history has been preserved like the Bible. Why wouldn't it be? If it is God's word, if, it's, if God is the author, why wouldn't he preserve it? He's going to take care of his word. Does not the Bible declare that he watches over his word? You see, 
Nations has even, have even gone to the extent of outlawing the Bible. They tried to destroy every copy and kill people for translating and printing it. People like William Tyndale and John Wycliffe are among the heroes of the faith who dedicated their lives to making sure that everyone would have the Bibles in their hands. You see, the Bible records an amazing story in Jeremiah, the 36th chapter, an attempt made by King Jehoiakim of Judah to destroy destroyed God's message that the prophet Jeremiah had recorded on a scroll. The king, what does he do? He cuts up the scroll and he burns it. You can read about that in Jeremiah 36, the 22nd and the 23rd verse. But God simply told Jeremiah, get another scroll and write the word again. The 18th century French philosopher Voltaire despised the Christian church and boasted that within 50 years of his death, Christianity would be uh, extinct and people would have to go to a museum to see a Bible. Yet after Voltaire died, his house was acquired by, guess who? The French Bible Society. And they used it to print and distribute the very thing that he said would be extinct. You see, God says his word will stand forever. This is what his word says. You, you can read about that in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, in the 8th verse, uh, Psalm 119th and 89th. You see, it says heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. This is what Jesus declares in Matthew 24 and 35. What is it about the word of God? There's no destroying the Bible because it's authored by God whom no one can destroy. So it is as eternal as its author and God is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, from alpha to omega, from the beginning to the end, the first and the last. There is and only is and only will ever be him. I read this story. I'm trying not to get excited. But when, you, when you think about the goodness of Jesus, oh, don't get preachy now. Don't get preachy. I read this story or example that was given while the, dealing with the truth. And as the statement goes, what if a college professor stood up before his class one day and he makes this statement? I want to begin this uh, philosophy class by getting to the bottom line with a statement that will govern everything that we study and talk about in this semester. The bottom line of this philosophy class is that there are no absolutes. There is no such thing as absolute truth. No uh, propositions that are true in every circumstance. Let me say it again. The bottom line of this philosophy class is that there are no absolutes. Now a student in the back raised his hand and said, Professor, may I ask a question? The professor allows him to speak. He says, you said that there is no such thing as an absolute as far as this philosophy class goes and no such thing as a statement of absolute truth. Are you absolutely sure about that? Because if you are, you have just given us a statement of an absolute that is true in every circumstance, which is a contradiction of the assertion that you just made that there are no absolutes. You gotta love college kids. 
You see, this exchange may sound like the kind of academic double talk that makes parents wonder what their children are learning in college and why they have to spend so much money for it. But the student who challenges professor makes a very important and valid point about the issue of truth and about the absurdity in denying the existence of a concept called truth. So how would you react to a doctor who was unsure of their diagnosis of your condition, eh, but they gave you some prescription medicine anyway? And then you take the, to the prescription to the pharmacist who isn't sure if the medicine that they're giving you is the medicine that was prescribed by the doctor who hesitantly uh, prescribed it in the first place. I would hope that you're wise enough to run as fast and as far away from those two knuckleheads since your health and life are at stake. You want a doctor and a pharmacist who believe in truth, a fixed standard of reality that guides their decisions. Truth, a fixed standard of reality that guides their decisions. The problem is, is that many people who insist on living by truth in the physical realm confidently reject truth in the spiritual realm. But simply announcing that truth does not exist, <laughs> that doesn't solve anything. You see, we're faced with this thing called truth and we have to do something with it. Pontius Pilate uh, asked the question of the ages when truth incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ stood before him supposedly on trial. Jesus says to Pilate, for this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. John 18 and 37. And in verse 38, here comes the question, the question that is still plaguing the minds of humanity. Pilate responds, what is truth? And if that evil uh, Roman governor had been an honest seeker of truth, he would have found the answer to his question standing right in his face. In fact, Jesus had definitely uh, answered Pilate's question the night before at the Last Supper during his prayer to the Father on the behalf uh, uh, of everyone when he prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17 and 17. And the Bible is truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Now, the world has always been confused and divided on the question of truth. There has been a myriad of responses to the question, what is truth? And the denier, for lack of a better term, is the person who simply dismisses and rejects the very concept of truth. You see, the agnostic says that absolute truth or absolute knowledge on issues such as God's existence cannot be attained in this life. Since the word agnostic means without knowledge, the agnostic's answer to Pilate's question would be, I don't know, because they don't know nothing. Now, this person is supposedly the perpetual questioner and seeker after truth. Now, the rationalist would say that human reason and experience are the ultimate criteria for determining truth. Now, rationalism focuses on the mind and simply says that whatever the mind conceives of as being reality is, in fact, truth. 
You see, rationalism thus limits the search for truth. It is one of the theories that came into play during the 18th century movement known as the Enlightenment, when the truth uh, uh, upon which Christianity is based came under its greatest sustained attack and were largely abandoned. You see, there's also a school of thought called positivism which says truth is limited to that which can be validated by the scientific method. If science authenticates a theory, then perhaps we can regard that theory as truth. So positivism doesn't leave any room for a supernatural savior with a supernatural revelation because these things cannot be tested by the scientific method in a lab. Jesus is not a test tube Jesus. Another of mankind's many answers to the question of truth is relativism, which says that truth is subjective and personal. You see, truth is what we feel at the moment to be true, so therefore what's true for me may not be true for you. But it's true anyhow, even if you don't realize it's true. Even if what I say is true today, I turn around and say tomorrow it's not. Pragmatism is yet another means of seeking to arrive at the uh, landing of truth. Pragmatism appeals to a lot of people because it claims that truth is whatever works. And this kind of tailor-made approach uh, is made for our uh, American style of loving my truth. A thinking that says we are each entitled to our own version of truth. I need to mention one other significant route that people have taken in attempts to arrive at truth, and this is man-made religion, defined as humanity's best attempts to reach up to and understand God. Our, uh, uh, you know, we even deny sometimes that he exists or cares about what happens to us, and we try to validate that in a religious standard. Now, the religionist may be the hardest person of all to deal with because uh, they would claim to be a follower of God and a seeker of spiritual truth, but more often than not, religion denies the absolute truth that God has spoken with finality in Jesus Christ. You ought to read Hebrews, the first chapter, the first through the second verse. You see, by requiring that which is not revealed in God's word itself. You see... I'm not saying that people cannot discover certain truths on their own, but the problem with the world's truth is that it often has to be revised or discarded when new facts are uncovered. Hundreds of years ago, people were convinced that the earth was flat. This may come as a shock to you, but I know people today that still believe that this world is flat. They believe this to this day. The world is flat. And there's a massive conspiracy to make people believe that the world is round. Now, when this was more of a prominent belief, people feared that if explorers would sail to the edge of the earth, they might fall off. But that truth had to be discarded as new evidence was produced. But as I just said to you a second ago, there are still people who hold to this truth and they reject even evidence that points to the contrary. Now here's a scenario that really drives me crazy. Changing truth. If you follow the world of nutrition and health today, 
your head is probably spinning out of control trying to keep up with all the new and sometimes conflicting information about the content and the value of certain foods, what's healthy and what's not healthy. And since research is constantly ongoing, today's facts may be tomorrow's myths. And from a biblical standpoint, we can't trust or, uh, you know, we can't rely on our moral instincts to determine truth because we have been corrupted by sin. Our intellect is also a poor guide to truth because we are finite creatures uh, whose knowledge is extremely limited. The only reason that we can know any truth at all is because God is God. Truth is not just that which confirms uh, or conforms to our reality, but there is no reality apart from God. Truth is that which conforms to his nature. We as Christians or believers can make an unapologetic, un compromising definitive statement about truth because of the perfectly true nature of God the Bible calls God the father him who is true first John 5 and 20 and Jesus makes this same astounding statement in John 14 and 6 I am the way and the truth and the life it's important that we see this you see, here's one example of the way God's nature is the standard for what is true. The Bible says God is not a man that he should lie, Numbers 23 and 19. So lying is wrong, not just because it messes up people and causes harm, but because it violates God's very nature. The same thing can be said for murder and theft and coveting and adultery. You see, these actions are out of line with God's character. Truth and purity are part of his eternal attributes. So while our current culture may often say truth is whatever we want truth to be, whatever we determine truth to be, God says truth must conform to a fixed standard. If I gave you a sheet of paper and a pencil and asked you to draw a straight line freehand, no matter how meticulous uh, you may be, your line would not be truly straight. But if I gave you a ruler with a sharp edge to draw that straight line against, the outcome would be totally different. So long as your pencil follows that fixed standard, your line will be straight. And anyone else can take that same ruler and make a straight line as well. And since God is by nature true, in order for something to be true, it must conform to him and his written revelation. Hallelujah. You see, God safeguarded the truth of his word through the process called divine inspiration. The apostle Peter, who experienced this inspiration, said the Holy Spirit oversaw the writing of scripture so that there was no contamination in it. Second Peter 1, 20 through 21. It says this, knowing that this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 
This is why we can say that the that God is the Bible's true author. But even though the Bible's human authors were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit, they often appeal to their own experiences and witnesses as reliable. You see, Peter said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Second Peter 1 and 16, check the text. You see, Peter went on to relate the transfiguration of Jesus, which Peter saw and heard. John, another apostolic witness, wrote about what we have heard and what we have seen with our own eyes, 1 John 1 and 1. You see, the writers of Scripture were safeguarded by the Holy Spirit from making an error. He moved them to write and equipped them in the process. And these men were so convinced of the divine truth that they were willing to die for it. Suppose I were a, a, a part of a conspiracy to say that Jesus was the Son of God and had risen from the dead even if I knew such a claim was a lie. If people said that they would kill me for holding such a belief, I'd show them where the body was. You see, I'd let them know it, it wouldn't make sense to die for something I knew to be false. I would point right to where his body is buried and say, ah, I just made a mistake. But the writers of Scripture stood by the word even when it meant they would be killed. Which leads me to the inerrancy of God's word. This is one of the things, what is it about his word? What, the, the dynamics of his word. I've said that the Bible is the complete truth and now I want you to uh, have an important term for this doctrine which you may already be familiar with. And that word is inerrant. And it means without ever. You see, fundamentally, inerrancy means that God's word forms an absolutely fixed, firm foundation of truth. Now, some people will say the Bible contains truth or contains, you know, the word of God. But that's only half the truth because it leaves open the possibility that the Bible also contains other things. And the inerrancy of scripture means that the Bible is true no matter what the subject may be. It is free from contamination and free from error. So some Bible critics are quick to point out that the existing manuscripts that we have of the Bible vary one from another in numerous places. So the argument goes that we can't talk about the Bible being inerrant because we don't have the original manuscripts also called autographs. Now, let me share with you an objection to this argument. If I was in debating class, I would not be arguing with you. I would be debating and my response to your idiocy is called an objection. So let me give you an objection to the argument and it has to do with human nature. You see, God knows that if we had the original autographs of Scripture, we would be tempted to make an idol out of them and worship them instead of the author. And that in and of itself would be a sin. And if you don't think that humans have an incurable need to make something visible to worship, go to Israel and see all the religious shrines and ornate altars and thousands of uh, lights and candles that various Christian groups have built over the centuries at varying holy sites. Or open your mind to the evidence that Marvel Comics has revealed about the American moviegoer. 
We want to build our own heroes to worship. What about the objection that the transmission of content from the autographs to the works after them had to pass through the hands of humanity? This leaves open the door for error. Well, when we measure this process against the common critical standards of historically viable documents, we find that the text of the scripture surpasses all others. You see, handwritten transmissions has been a trusted historical process for centuries. While it may first come as a shock, most of what we know from both secular and religious ancient history is fundamentally dependent upon the reliability of handwritten transmission of text. In fact, readily available printed manuscripts were not in circulation until the invention of the movable type printing press in the 15th century. So this means that what we know of ancient Egypt, Egypt and Greek and Roman history and of the Middle Ages up until the time of the Reformation is solely dependent upon accurate scribal transmissions of written text. All I can say is fascinating. Thank you, Mr. Spock. Secondly, the process of copying handwritten manuscripts was extremely meticulously safeguarded for the purity of the text. The Old Testament had several different scribal traditions and text families that spanned thousands of years and its writing uh, and transmission and style. Several textbooks would guide scribes so that they accurately transmit the scripture. One is called the Akla We Akla, and it contained more than 400 lists covering various details of words and verses that are easily confused, which gives instructions on how to tell each of these words and apart. The Masoretic tradition also uh, provides a method of, uh, of accenting the written text and adding vowels. You see, the original Hebrew text was written in all consonants. That made the traditional reading of the text more systematic and easier to transmit correctly. There are also commentaries that existed in the margins or at the end of manuscripts for the purpose of guiding future readers and copyists on how best to read, write, and understand the scripture. One example is the Mezora Finalis. And that's a commentary at the end of the book or sections of books that detail how many individual words are in the book. Now this simplified the proofing of a finished manuscript so that the reviewer could determine that a new copy had the exact number of letters as the original. And at times it would even indicate the middle word or consonant of a book for easy cross-referencing between the original and the copied manuscripts. Let me just make this last point. Scribes were very cautious, recognizing the warning of the scriptures against tampering with or distorting the holy scriptures. And that's all throughout the Bible. Now, there are some supposed contradictions in the word. And the reason that we still affirm the Bible's inerrancy in the autographs, even though we don't have them, is that it is absolutely crucial to believe and to know that we have a perfect standard to work against as we compare the various existing manuscripts. 
You see, where the text of biblical manuscripts differ, scholars work to reach the closest consensus possible on what the original would say. And while these examples can be particularly disorienting for believers since they come from the very text of Scripture itself, these apparent contradictions can be addressed by looking at the context of these passages and the intention of the writers themselves. Let me just give you two examples of the most commonly cited contradictions. First, the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. You see, various passages of the Old Testament are paraphrased in the New Testament. In certain cases, it appears there are differences in the language and the tension between the original text and the way it is being used in the New Testament statement. When dealing with uh, a type of, this type of challenge, we have to keep in mind that the biblical authors of the New Testament were utilizing a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. You may have heard me refer to the Septuagint as you've listened to me speak throughout the years. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament compiled in the third century uh, uh, before Christ or, or after Christ once Greek had become the common trade language of the ancient world. It was the uh, version of the Old Testament that most, first, that most first century Jews, including Jesus and his own disciples, would have read and memorized. You see, one example of the differences that can be uh, created between Hebrew Old Testament and the New Testament use of the Septuagint can be seen in Acts, the second chapter, the 25th through the 28th verse, where Peter quotes a famous passage from Psalms 16, 8 through 11. And the differences in these passages are partially the result of the Septuagint translation that Peter uses word for word. Now, some scholars believe that some changes like my flesh will also live in hope as opposed to my flesh also will dwell securely, which is the Old Testament uh, text based upon the Hebrew where the first was the translation in the Septuagint. You see, this may account for Peter's application of this passage to Jesus' resurrection in Acts 2, 29-32. And often the differences between the Hebrew version and the Septuagint can be accounted for in much of the same way as the two different uh, English versions. The act of translation always comes with choices about which words to use, how to arrange the words, and how well a word translated into a new culture or time period. Yet the goal of a translator is always to remain faithful to the intent of the original passage. You see, the comparison of this text from Psalms 16 and 18, or, or Acts uh, uh, 2, reveals that the changes are only minor variations in language or the way a concept is being expressed, and they bear little impact on our understanding of the inerrancy of Scripture. However, Peter uses, uh, uh, Peter's use of Psalm 16 does bring to light how the early Christians read all Testament texts through the new lens of their fulfillment in Christ. You know, I'm constantly telling you, look at life and everything about life through the lens of Christ. Since Christ had come to fulfill the Old Testament Particular words and passages take on new light and meaning that could be seen only in light of the coming of Christ. 
The early Christians took these Old Testament scriptures as authentic, truthful, inerrant texts that witnessed to the coming of Jesus. Another challenge to uh, inerrancy highlights the differences between various passages that report the same event or teaching, but in different ways. These differences are sometimes cited as a proof that scripture contradicts itself and thus cannot be inerrant. One of the most well-known examples of this uh, regards the exact time of the crucifixion of Jesus. Mark and John both mention the hour and these times seem to contradict. Mark 15, 22 through 25 and John 19, 14 through 15. Now several theories have been given that can harmonize the account in Mark and John. And one possible explanation for the difference in times is the close resemblance of the Greek script for the number three and the number six. Mark's gospel suggests that the crucifixion occurred at the third hour, which would be considered 9 a.m. John's gospel cites the time of the final trial to be at the sixth hour, which would suggest that Jesus was crucified at noon. Another explanation is that John utilized the Roman system of timekeeping, whereas Mark used a Jewish system. Others conclude that Mark and John were both using approximations for the time of Jesus' crucifixion and the events surrounding the crucifixion. But both writers, however, uh, have in common the, the most important part of the text, and that's the event occurred in the late morning hours. Now, while we cannot fully account for the harmonization of these two accounts, we can conclude that the contrast between them is not so significant that they would impact our commitment to the inerrancy of the Word of God. You see, both accounts point to the same situation with complete clarity and striking similarity with other accounts of Jesus' death found in Matthew 27 and 2, 11 and 14, Mark 15, 1 through 5, Luke 23, 1 through 5, John 18, 29 through 38. And many of these so-called contradictions can be accounted for if we just carefully read and study these texts in great detail and rely on the help of conservative scholars who are also committed to inerrancy. Let me just close today with this because I believe that after everything that I've said to you today, this is going to open up in your mind revelation of why we struggle sometimes with the application of what we know to be inerrant which is the word of God and why it seems like it has no power in our life. Let me just remind you that there is authority in God's voice. The supreme kind of authority that a king holds over his subjects by virtue of his office, the Bible holds by virtue of its author, who is the king of kings the Lord of Lords, the King and of creation, and the ruler over all things. You see, the Bible's authority is inerrant or is inherent uh, in its uh, every word and every uh, portion of a word. You see, the Bible is also supremely authoritative because it is God's revelation or God's voice in history. Somebody ought to Facebook that. The word is God's voice in history. 
See, the Bible is God's voice in print, meaning that the words of Scripture came from his mouth. This is the doctrine of inspiration. Christians talk about hearing God's voice in his word or hearing God speak to them through his word. This is the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. What you are experiencing is the illumination of the voice of God in your life. The term God's voice will help us grasp what we might call the immediacy of the Bible's authority. And that is the Bible's authority is timeless. Let me give you an example. When we read in Exodus 20 and 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This command has the very same force behind it today as it had when God first penned it hundreds uh, of years and thousands of years ago. This, this first word that uh, to Moses more than 3,000 years ago that was given as a law. This is important because one problem I see as a pastor, and you may see this as well, is that people disregard God's word because they believe it's just ink on a page or out of pace with our times. But when you receive the Bible as God's voice speaking directly to us, important because of uh, uh, another common problem among the people of God, this shows up when, uh, when, when people know what God said and can even repeat back to you what God said but they're not doing anything about what God said. Matter of fact, every parent is familiar with this scenario. You experience this in your children. Your child disregards your direct instructions. And when you confront the child later and ask them, what did I tell you to do? He or she can repeat back to you verbatim your instruction. But for some reason, your command didn't carry any weight with that child. So the result is disobedience. Any good parent won't let that go without appropriate discipline. Our Heavenly Father has spoken to us in His Word. He has told us what to do. He has told us how to think. He has told us how to live. Scripture is God's voice in print. So when we preach from the Bible, we need to emphasize the authoritative nature of his word in order that those who listen will apply the truth from the word to their own lives. When I stand here before you, I'm not giving you an opinion. I'm not expressing to you just ideas or possibilities. What I'm declaring to you is the authoritative word of God. Jesus was being challenged by his opponents one day when he tried to tell them that he was God. They objected. They accused him of blasphemy and even got ready to stone him. You can read about that in John, the 10th chapter, 31st through the 33rd. So Jesus turns to Scripture to make his case. And the way he used the word teaches us much about the Bible's authority. You see, Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? 
You see, Jesus was using a powerful argument here. He said that if the Bible, in this case, the psalmist Asaph in Psalms 82 and 6, used the term gods for men who were merely God's representatives, then those who were accusing Jesus should not object if he called himself God. Why? Well, because they had just seen him heal a blind man, John 9. They just saw him do other miracles. What I want you to see here is the binding authority of Scripture. Not even one word can be changed. Scripture is uh, irrefutable. It's irrefragable, which means it cannot be voided or invalidated. How important is this trait? It's so important enough to Jesus that he built a critical argument around it. You see, the Lord's opponents might have wished that they could have nullified or they could have gotten around the word God in Psalms 82 and 6 because it is the Hebrew word Elohim, which is one of the names of God. But Jesus had them uh, because God's word called his representatives gods and nothing could be changed in Scripture. Now, Paul uses a similar tactic in Galatians, the third chapter, to prove that Jesus is Abraham's promised seed. And the validity of Paul's entire point hangs on the difference between the singular seed and the plural seeds. Not only each letter of the Bible, but even the smallest part of each letter. It's vital. It carries God's authority. Jesus Christ also said that the Bible carries the imprint of his divine authority. He announces to his disciples, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24 and 35. And this statement on the lips of anyone other than Jesus would be blasphemy. But he alone can claim all authority has been given to me in heaven and in the earth. Therefore, Jesus' words recorded in scripture will outlast history because the word is eternal. I love the way the psalmist put it. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119 and 89. As a matter of fact, when you're going through something, when you're dealing with crisis in your life, when you're frustrated and you don't know which way to turn, you ought to just speak prophecy over your life. You ought to declare your history in advance and just remind your crisis that your word is settled in heaven. This whole thing I'm going through has been settled in, he in heaven. You see, Jesus possesses all authority and his word has all authority behind it we are members of christ so when we speak in the power of christ we speak in the power of his authority so then why are members of churches that we pastor not seeing god's word at work i'm convinced that the reason is that they are not living as though god's word is our authority and we're not continually teaching that God's word is our authority we're not seeing uh, more power in our lives and in our churches because we aren't taking the Bible seriously 
The fact that the Bible is completely authoritative and cannot be broken is a wonderful doctrine of the Christian faith. But the truth and power of God's word can be nullified in your experience if you refuse to let the word speak to you as it is or if you start mixing it with your human viewpoint. If you start sharing it with your emotions. If you connect it to how you feel right now. If you connect what God declares to what the doctor declares to what the lawyer declares to what the bank declares you have manipulated the word and therefore nullify its effect in your life now notice I did not say the Bible can lose its power or authority that never happens because God said his word is settled but the Bible's power can be blunted in your life when you do not respond to God in humility and obedience. And this is probably the number one travesty that people who claim to believe and follow God's word commit against God's word. Many people who mix their own thoughts with the Bible's teaching have many degrees and many uh, letters that come before and after their name. I want you to understand education is fine and the church has benefited from well-trained commentators and scholars who seek to understand and communicate to each of us what the word means. But there's a big difference between an honest attempt to understand the Bible and diluting its teachings with human thinking. The best example of this is in scripture itself when the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus to accuse his disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders in Matthew the 15th chapter the first and the second verse. But Jesus comes back at them with a far more serious charge which was that of nullifying the word of God. Using the example of God's commandment to honor one's father and mother, Jesus showed how the scribes and the Pharisees allowed people, mainly themselves, to get around this clear command with a hallowed promise uh, to give these resources to God while actually not having to give them away at all. You see, Jesus identified the problem that they had when he said at the end of verse 6, and by this you invest validate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You see, God never meant for the commandment to honor your father and mother to be skirted on some technicality. He did not intend for you to find the loophole. The Pharisees added so many traditions and regulations to the law that they ended up creating a barrier around the word so people couldn't even get to the word. But the Bible says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Romans 3 and 4. You see, the issue that Jesus dealt with was uh, the authority of God's word. And if God says that we are to honor our parents, then trying to find that loophole in this command of God, this authoritative declaration... He doesn't say just while you're a child, but he says at every level of your life, while your parents are alive, you ought to honor them. And then when they transition, you ought to honor their legacy. Because when you do this, you honor God. But when you don't, you commit sin against the truth. And the truth is God. 
You see, this issue of truth and authority is at the core of why the Holy Spirit is not doing more in some of our lives. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth who is obligated to God's Word. So when we start diluting the Word with our human viewpoint, the Spirit takes a back seat because He's not going to bless your speculation. There's an interesting story in 2 Kings 4, 38 through 41 about the prophet Elisha and the apprentice prophets who were under his tutelage. You see, there was a famine in the land and these student prophets were hungry. They weren't just hungry, they was hungry. Elisha told his servant to make a pot of stew for everybody. And one of the prophets gathered some wild gourds for the stew. Now the gourds looked fine to him. They looked like good gourds. And he probably thought they were good and that they would add a little spice, a little flavor to the stew. So he decided to help out by tossing the gourds into the stew. But as everyone began to eat, some began to get sick and said that the stew was poisoned. Now someone cried out to Elisha, Oh man of God, there is death in the pot. Elisha took care of the problem and the stew was fine and no one died. But unfortunately, this is what's happening on Sundays in churches across this nation. Plenty of pastors and teachers are tossing wild gourds into the pot, adding human wisdom to God's word or even allowing human views and opinions to replace the scripture. And this is why people can actually be worse off by going to church because they come away more confused and unsure than they were when they got there about what the Bible is saying or what is declaring, let alone whether it has any relevance for them. Remember, a mist in the pulpit creates a fog in the pew. You see, biblical authority means staying true to God's word. It also means that God has the supreme right to determine our decision making and set the agenda for our lives. God doesn't want our rationalizations, but our response. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, whether it was convenient or not convenient, because people want to have their ears tickled instead of hearing the truth. 2 Timothy 4, 2 and 3, check the text. You see, there's nothing wrong with preaching in such a way that your congregants may leave feeling good as long as the authoritative truth of God's inerrant word is what makes them feel good and not your linguistic brilliance. They may have come to hear the melodic sound of your harmonious voice, but they better leave with the content of what is true. And the only thing that is true, the standard of truth is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you want to experience the power of God in your life like you never have before, you ought to stand upon the inerrancy of the truth of the word of God and experience life as a level you've never experienced before because the word is as serious as a heart attack. It's important to understand something about 
what is it? What is it about the word of God? It's inerrant. It is my history in advance. It is my power and my authority to be liberated in life. Stand on the word for it is solid and sure. All other things will cause you to sink. God bless you. Heaven smile upon you and grant to you great peace.